This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chasley in New York, and we begin with the latest from Ukraine. Claims of a counterattack inside Russia. A low-altitude airstrike by two helicopters leaving a fuel depot in Belgorod ablaze. Ukraine's Ministry of Defense has declined to comment. The Kremlin says, though, it could impact negotiations due to resume virtually today. Ukraine's President Zelensky, meanwhile, has fired two top generals, sending a warning to what he calls traitors in the military, with the words, if you don't decide where your homeland is, you will be punished. President Zelensky also said Russia is focusing its military operations on eastern Ukraine. There's been heavy shelling around Kharkiv and in the Donbass region in the separatist-controlled Luhansk and Donetsk. The situation in the southern direction and in the Donbass remains extremely difficult. Russian troops are accumulating the potential for strikes, powerful blows. In Chernobyl, Russian forces are leaving the area around the nuclear complex. According to Ukraine, there are unconfirmed reports some Russian troops are suffering from radiation sickness. And around 2,000 people who have been trapped in Mariupol have now left in a convoy of buses. And awaiting their arrival in the city of Zaporizhia is senior international correspondent Ivan Watson. We have been getting indications from the ICRC, that's the International Committee of the Red Cross, and from the Mariupol City Council that the convoy is on the move, that it has left uh, Berdyansk and is on its way to Zaporizhia. And a good day, that would take about three, three and a half hours. But uh, there are many military checkpoints to go through, and we're being told that it's a convoy of some 52 buses uh, carrying some 2,000 people joined by uh, many civilian privately owned vehicles. Let's come this way, Tom, while I keep walking. Uh, they're going to be coming to this place where police, where ambulances, where volunteers are standing by to help process. Now, this has been an, an kind of improvised hub. Uh, this is a superstore where people have been coming uh, on their own uh, with their own privately owned vehicles day after day uh, to try to escape Russian occupied territory. Some people escaping from Mariupol, others escaping from uh, villages and towns in the countryside in between Ukrainian controlled territory and Russian occupied territory. And they kind of come in here and they're processed. Uh, and there's a, a tremendous volunteer effort to help people who've suddenly been made homeless. So I'm going to take you into this. Um, there, there's a metaphor here, perhaps, that the superstore is called the epicenter, and I would say it is the epicenter of trying to help out the tens of thousands of people who've been displaced by this, by this terrible conflict. So many of the people, when they come in, they can get uh, donated uh, clothing here, which was stacked up to the ceiling uh, just a couple days ago, and come into here and you have free food, uh, hot, hot uh, tea, uh, you have medics standing by, uh, and you have support networks such as uh, information about how to get deeper into Ukrainian-controlled territory, free transport, free vans being offered. And this is particularly poignant for me, this bulletin board where people 
post all sorts of things like offering to, to fix people's shattered car windows, which have been hit by Russian shells in Mariupol, or information about missing loved ones. So this uh, entire center has been functioning for weeks, but it now is poised to, to get an enormous influx of potentially thousands of, I would argue, uh, quite shell-shocked and traumatized evacuees uh, who've been making a long and very difficult journey from Mariupol. Ivan Watson speaking to my colleague Brianna Keeler just a little earlier. Now, in other developments, Ukrainian forces have retaken the city of Erpin, a suburb of the capital, Kiev, after weeks of fierce fighting. Fred Plyken traveled to a once bustling city now lying in ruins. There is no safe way to get into Irpin. The only feasible route is on the back of a police special forces pickup truck on dirt paths. But even here, the earth is scorched after Russian troops shelled the trail. Ukrainian forces are taking us into this area on back roads because they say taking the main roads is simply much too dangerous. They want to show us the damage done when Russian forces tried to enter Kiev. Ukrainian authorities say this is still one of the most dangerous places in this war-torn country, and we immediately see why. We are driving right towards an area engulfed in smoke from artillery shelling. This is where Russian forces tried to push into Ukraine's capital, but were stopped and beaten back by the underdog Ukrainians. The battles here are fierce. Authorities say 50% of the city has been destroyed. To us, that number seems like an understatement. We have to keep moving quickly because this place can get shelled anytime. Ukraine's national police now patrols Irpin again, but their forces frequently come under fire, the chief tells me. Just yesterday, our officers who were searching for dead bodies, they were shot at with mortars, he says. They had to lay under the bridge and wait for it to stop. But the grim task of finding and taking out the many dead continues more than two dozen on this day alone. Some have been laying in the streets for weeks and can only now be removed. When Russian forces invaded Ukraine, they quickly advanced on the capital, Kiev, all the way to Irpin. Here, the Ukrainians stood and fought back. Vladimir Putin's army controlled large parts of Irpin and the battle laid waste to much of this formerly wealthy suburb. And this was the epicenter where we find burned out Russian trucks and armored vehicles. So this is the area where some of the heaviest fighting took place in Irpin. And as you can see, that there was a Russian armored vehicle which was completely annihilated. We do have to be very careful around here because there still could be unexploded munitions laying around. We meet Volodymyr Rudenko, a local resident who says he stayed and took up arms when the Russians invaded. Always, there was not a single day when I left town, he says, even during the heaviest fighting. It must have been difficult, I ask. Just so you understand, he says, once there were 348 impacts in one area in one single hour. And the battle here is not over. Suddenly, Irpin's mayor shows up with a group of special forces saying they're looking for Russians possibly still hiding here. I ask him how it's going. We're working, he says. There's information that there are two Russian soldiers dressed in civilian clothes, but with our group, we're going to clean them up. 
Ukrainian forces say they will continue the fight and further push Russian forces away from their capital. The deputy interior minister saying they need the U.S.'s support to succeed. What do you need from the United States? Everything. <laughs> Military support, first of all. Weapons to help the Ukrainians expel the invading army, they hope, and finally bring this suburb out of the reach of Vladimir Putin's cannons. Fred Plytkin, CNN, Irpin, Ukraine. A reminder once again of one of our top stories. Russian officials say a fire at a fuel depot inside Russia was caused by a Ukrainian airstrike. Phil Black joins us now from Lviv. Phil, great to have you with us. This type of attack on key infrastructure is what the Ukrainians have been dealing with from Russian troops and Russian strikes now for many weeks. I believe this, if proven true, would be the first counterattack in the opposite direction. What more do we know? It'd be the first, first attack of this sort of scale, I think, certainly, uh, Julia. If we start with what we do know, and that is that clearly mm. this explosion took place, because we have video of it. We can see it. You can see the huge blast at the site. In one of the videos that captures the moment, you can also see incoming fire impacting that site just moments before the blast. So it seems that somebody shot at it and blew up this facility. Uh, the Russians say it was Ukrainian helicopters, two of them flying low, crossing the border, firing their weapons uh, into that fuel storage area. Uh, the, the Kremlin spokesman says President Putin has been informed about this and has also implied that this is the sort of event, the sort of attack that could impact the atmosphere surrounding the diplomacy and the negotiations that are also taking place to try and talk through a solution uh, to this war. But interestingly, from the Ukrainians, there is still no clear comment or explanation. In fact, the most recent comment, which came through a short time ago from uh, a spokesperson for the Ukrainian uh, Defence Ministry, says that it's neither a confirmation nor a denial. Uh, the spokesperson says that we are busy fighting a defensive operation against Russian aggression. So that means we're not responsible for every catastrophe, every uh, every mishap on the soil of the, of the Russian Federation. And he says it's not the, the first time uh, we've been accused of, of this or accused of something like this. And so neither a confirmation nor a denial of, of, of them being responsible for this. So it raises questions. If they did do it, then why aren't they more proud of it? Why aren't they cheering about it a little more? If they didn't, then, well, who did and why? Uh, but lots of questions, perhaps, in the event that it was the Ukrainians about just what their capability is, to the, the boldness and the, the skill, the ability to actually launch an attack like this on Russian Federation soil, flying through Russian airspace. Uh, I think it is a lot more than perhaps Russia and much of the world thought that they were capable of at a time like this when they're still very much dealing with the Russian invasion on their own territory and soil. Julia. All great questions. Can we tie the threads together here of what we've seen just in the last 24 hours? We are seeing, in addition to, to this attack, whoever carried it out, the fact that we are managing to get evacuations from places like Mariupol and people there clearly have been desperate for many weeks. There's also the suggestion that despite those people leaving, they're not managing to get the humanitarian aid in that they would hope to and perhaps in some way are being prevented by Russian troops and perhaps that's being confiscated. All of this ahead of these virtual talks today, Phil, is there any hope of a, a breakthrough of some kind when we get them? Well, I think the talks that are continuing online are going to be mostly procedural and technical. Mm. They're going to be looking at the detail and trying to trying to work out some language that 
could then be taken to the next face-to-face meeting that could perhaps then be used, as has been flagged, as the basis of talks for at least the foreign ministers of the respective countries getting together and then perhaps ultimately uh, the leaders of the respective countries getting together. But it seems that we're still some distance from that yet, based upon all the comments that we've had from both sides over the last few days. But you're right, on the ground, meantime, there are big efforts, really big logistical operations, trying to get people out of some of the Russian-occupied areas, notably the city of Mariupol, which, as we know, has been under siege for more than four weeks now. People have been getting out through humanitarian corridors, either on foot or using private transportation. What there's been very little success with so far has been getting bus convoys in so you can move out large numbers of people. Now, over the last 24 hours, there has been an effort to get about 45 buses into that city. We don't know if any of of those buses have actually made it in yet, but what we do know is that some of those buses are now returning from that area with about 2,000 people on board. These may be people that walked out on foot and have now met up with those buses. But it is progress of a sort because there are still thought to be around 150,000 people in that city still living under bombardment, still living with daily fighting, with very little food, water, heat, in truly uh, horrendous Uh, situations. As the Red Cross, or a representative of the Red Cross said recently, they are running out of adjectives to describe the horrors and the conditions through which that people are enduring in that city. It is a a truly great humanitarian crisis, and the efforts to get people out of there safely have been inadequate so far, but there might be some progress today, as I say, with about 2,000 heading out on the buses, uh, as well as other people in private cars joining that convoy as well. Julia. Yeah, every life and every person that is evacuated should be celebrated, but to your point, so much more to do to, to help the people there. Um, Phil, while I've got you, I just want to ask you, because in the last hour we showed a press conference of the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, and we were hoping to hear from him what they're hearing with regards to Russian troops perhaps leaving the area surrounding the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. The suggestion was, and reports have been unconfirmed at this stage, that perhaps some of those Russian troops were suffering from radiation sickness. What more can you tell us? What are you hearing on your side? Yeah, it's hard to verify, impossible Mm. to verify, really, Julia. But these are the reports that are coming from Ukrainian officials. They do say, and, and this is believed to be true, that the Russians have left after taking that territory surrounding the Chernobyl site, both the nuclear plant itself and the surrounding site that was the site of the world's worst nuclear disaster back in 1986, they have now suddenly left. Uh, And it is Ukrainian officials who say that while they were there, the Russian troops were digging trenches, building fortifications, and as a result, some of them very quickly started to experience uh, radiation sickness. And this created some sense of panic, they say, among the Russian soldiers who were still stationed there. As I say, that is very difficult to verify, but that is the Ukrainian explanation for why they have very suddenly and and without any public explanation uh, given up that piece of territory. Right. Phil Black in Lviv there. Thank you so much for that report. Okay, coming up on the show, cyber soldiers, Ukraine's growing tech army tackling Russia's misinformation war. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back. Global investors monitoring the new round of talks between Russia and Ukraine today muted expectations after the Kremlin's warning, too, that an airstrike on a Russian oil depot will strain the atmosphere. For now, take a look at this. U.S. futures and European shares are higher 
on this first day of a new month and a new quarter, of course, too. So that will play into it. U.S. stocks coming off their worst three-month stretch since the start of the pandemic. That's the performance pressured by the war in Ukraine, slowing growth in China and higher borrowing costs as the U.S. Federal Reserve begins raising interest rates. The American jobs market, too, remains a bright spot. However, new numbers today showing the economy adding 431,000 positions net last month. A bit lighter, actually, than estimates. But numbers for January and February were revised substantially higher. So a positive picture there. For now, fighting for their homes from their keyboards. Ukraine has created an IT army of hackers who have volunteered to fight Russia online. They're also finding unique ways to raise money for the government too. Since the war began, officials have been calling for crypto donations, both to help Ukraine's troops and to pay for essential humanitarian aid. So far, the Ministry of Digital Transformation has raised almost $70 million of its $200 million goal. Ukraine's Deputy Minister for Digital Transformation, Alex Bornyakov joins us now. Alex, fantastic to have you on the show. We appreciate your time. How critical is it, do you believe, to fight the misinformation and technology war that Ukraine is facing against Russia? And that was before this invasion and, of course, since. Hi, everyone. Yeah, it's indeed critical. And, uh, well, I still believe uh, the, the most job uh, our military are doing, and uh, this is where the most uh, um, significant part being done. But uh, still, without having this front, uh, I think we would we would lose in, in the long term. So covering this part, uh, we make sure that Russians won't, won't, wouldn't have more money to fund this war because they don't spend uh, their taxpayers' money on building schools, roads, uh, helping their people, but they build tanks, rockets, and then killing our civilians, possess threat to whole Europe. So I think in the long term, what we're doing is is, is really helping also uh, from the military standpoint. Um, and, and, and we uh, focusing our efforts uh, on fighting on the cyber front as long as doing what we call digital diplomacy. So we appeal to uh, companies around the world to stop doing this with Russia. Um, so those are two major lines of work that we're doing at this point. And we'll come back to the digital diplomacy because I, this is another crucial factor, I think, of, of what you're trying to achieve here. But I want to talk about the IT army, the collection of, of hackers from around the world that, that you've collected together. And I believe you communicate via, via Telegram. And I've read that it's as many as 300,000 different individuals. What can you tell me about them and, and what they're doing? Sure. Um, so during the first day of, of war, uh, there were so many people that wanted to help. And I believe the majority of them was Ukrainians and they were looking for personal contacts with us, with other authorities from Ukraine asking like what we can do for, for our country, what we um, can do as, as citizens to, to protect Ukraine, to protect our homes, defend our homeland. And obviously we weren't able to uh, communicate to thousands of people. So we decided to channel this energy and uh, make it uh, like systematic. So Mikhail Fedorov uh, came with this idea, came up with this idea. To, so let's create this Telegram channel, ask them all of them to join this channel so we can give them tasks. 
and um, and it worked. Uh, it actually was beyond our expectations. So I didn't think that could be so many people, so hundreds, thousands of people. But it, it worked out, and uh, I believe we uh, managed to. Uh, Can I ask how powerful these hackers One, two, three, are? Four, I remember. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, oh, have I lost you, Alex? Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Okay, good. Yes, We've I got can. you back. Wow, we can't have an IT failure in the middle of a conversation about IT. What a disaster. Um, can I ask how powerful these, these hackers are? I remember in the early days of the invasion, Russia allegedly had issues with their government websites. They went down. Are these hackers powerful enough, perhaps, to attack Russian infrastructure, take down government websites, perhaps military operations too? If you ask them to do that, have you asked them to do that? And are they powerful enough to do so? Well, they appear, appeared so, and the fact says that they, they were in power to, so they managed to get down uh, their stock exchange, their websites of their FSB Kremlin. Um, they completely destroyed their air, uh, airline uh, software system. So there's so, so much more. And uh, also, take take uh, they have taken down their government services, online government services completely. So um, there was plenty of uh, of attacks and hacks that were successfully performed by them. And the interesting fact that we don't know any of them. So this was completely vol volunteer um, movement, decentralized network of people who not managed by someone specifically and, and they just were doing this because they think that's they, they're doing this for the right cause. Alex, you said something interesting there that I just want to ask you again about was the stock exchange. I think a lot of people thought that the stock exchange or believed the stock exchange in Russia was shut due to volatility, technical issues with the sheer pressure of selling that we were seeing. Are you saying you believe it was a hack attack and that's why the stock exchange stayed closed for so long? Uh, what I'm saying is that for the first, it was during the first three days, it was down also to the technical reasons. Then they closed it. Um, and uh, well, I, I remember that they just were not responding uh, online. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly which part, part was harmed, but I'm sure that their website was down. Uh, and, but of course, they, they also had different issues uh, because investors want to pull out from, from Russia that this is the separate thing, but their mm. system also was not working. Yeah, fascinating. Um Ukraine also, I believe, had the fourth highest adoption rate of, of crypto even before this invasion took place. And I know you and the government have harnessed this in, in many ways as a tool of war now, I believe, to get payments to people. You've been selling NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Talk to me about the power of crypto at this moment in your mind. So, yeah, indeed, uh, when we started, the, our ministry is... Uh, two years old, uh, and from the day one, we were promoting uh, Ukraine as a crypto-friendly country and doing everything to uh, legalize crypto in Ukraine. And uh, those efforts appear to be successful. So um, we, after three days of war, Michael Fodor asked to create this fund because uh, national bank and national and financial system of, of Ukraine was uh, severely 
limited, uh, especially when you want to send payments abroad. But we had to do something. There was so much stuff missing for, for our people, for our army. So the decision to open this fund was uh, was necessary by that time. It was so much... Uh, was, everything was changing so fast. It was so hectic. But... Um, we had to do. We had to act fast, and crypto is actually providing you this opportunity because you don't have to wait for two, three days for the for the banking uh, transfer to come through. In, in crypto, it's it's being done for 10, 15 minutes. So we started to make those payouts and, and deliver like bulletproof vests, helmets, uh, medical supplies, food rations, everything that army need. Um, for and and uh, people started to respond and donate donate so much money. Uh, for that cause. Um, as of now, uh, yeah, we managed to uh, raise almost $70 million and we spent almost 42 or 43. Um, and we continue to get donations. Uh, um, but, and by the way, pre President, in the middle of war, he signed this law on virtual assets, which basically uh, was the final step to legalize crypto in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so yeah. once the war over, we'll, we would welcome all the companies from around the world to work with Ukraine and incorporate here. You know, it's fascinating. And I know you've made the point to say, look, we're buying non-lethal equipment with this money. So the crypto community know it's it's not lethal weaponry. And I want to make that point in particular. Um, just very quickly, you don't see it as a threat to the national currency, the use of crypto, because there will be a lot of people listening to this saying, wow, this is a nation state, like a few others that are adopting it in a, in a, a fulsome way. You don't see it as a threat. We don't see the threat, and, and we work closely with our national bank. Um, so, in our constitution, it says that only means of payment is is grivna, our currency. So, um, crypto in Ukraine considered to be as asset. Um, it's very close from legal standpoint. It's very close to intellectual property. So, it's more like asset rather than money. But still, it, it, you you can transfer it, you can possess it, you can inherit it. Um, I know you can you can split it if you're, for instance, you divorced or whatever. Um, so we just uh, put this into legal system of Ukraine uh, as one of their, uh, but this is one exclusion. Uh, stable coins are also a means of payment, but they're controlled by national banks. So w I think we uh, made a balanced approach. When we, it's, it's not like in Salvador, so they just uh, make uh, Bitcoin as a means of payment. But we also consulted with uh, with their BAPs, with FAT, with money and time money laundering uh, authorities, because we want to make it uh, like long term strategy for uh, uh, for companies, for the government, and. Uh, uh, all of them uh, had their interest and had their priorities. So I think they're in Ukraine, it, it's going to work totally fine. Alex, you're giving my viewers a sense of the conversations that, fingers crossed, when this war is over, we're going to have on this show for the foreseeable future. And I can see the exciting things that you were doing before you had to start fighting a war. Um, and Alex, I know this is very personal to you too, and for many Ukrainians, because you also have family in Russia, I believe, and they don't understand or believe what you're experiencing and what Ukraine's, Ukrainian people are, are seeing and feeling and suffering. What do you want to say to Russian people and to your family in Russia who perhaps don't understand and don't believe? 
Well, this is indeed a tragedy for, for the most of Ukrainian. And uh, I want the world to know that uh, it's not just my personal story. It's it's like it's thousands of st- such stories because back in the USSR, we were one big country and uh, um, my father was military. So we just he was moving. He's from Russia and he was moved to Ukraine. He left there. Some of a part of my family uh, cousins, they are still in Russia, some of them in Ukraine. And this is uh, it's not just me again. It's for a lot of families. It's like that. And when Putin started this war, it, it, it what makes it horrible because it's not just uh, two nations fighting and also like brothers and sisters and cousins are also fighting. And this is a huge strategy. Um, so um, what I would like to say to them, um, so, my, so what I'm going to say is that there is no uh, reason you, you can... Um, was the word I'm looking for? I'm sorry. Um, okay. That could justify uh, sending militaries to kill your brothers and sisters, and there is no reason, political or economical reason, for that. So if you support this, I I, I don't think it's it's right. It's something is wrong with it, with those people, and uh, uh, it's very sad that they don't understand that. And uh, I believe that it's always could be a diplomatic uh, solution for, for for that, especially in in cases like Ukraine and Russia. I know. Um, I hope your cousin can hear that, and I hope you find a path back to each other after this. Alex, thank you for your time. We're going to continue to speak in bad times and in good. I promise. Alex Bornyakov, Ukraine's Deputy Minister for Digital Transformation. Great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. Stay safe. Welcome back. And a reminder of our top stories this hour. A Russian governor claims two Ukrainian helicopters have attacked a fuel depot inside Russia. Videos posted online show multiple strikes hitting the facility as helicopters flew by. Now, CNN cannot confirm if they were indeed Ukrainian helicopters, the Kremlin says. It regards the incident, however, as an escalation that could negatively impact talks with Ukraine. It comes as Russia and Ukraine have agreed to keep open a humanitarian corridor from Mariupol. Officials in the besieged city say around 2,000 people have been evacuated so far. China and the EU have also been holding a virtual summit today. And of course, the war in Ukraine was top of the agenda. Moments ago, the president of the European Council urged China to help put an end to the conflict. Any attempts to circumvent sanctions or provide aid to Russia would prolong the war. This would lead to more loss of life and greater economic impact. This is not in anyone's long-term interest. We will also remain vigilant on any attempts to aid Russia financially or militarily. However, positive steps by China to help end the war would be welcomed by all Europeans and by the global community. Call it the rumble over rubles. The Kremlin says unfriendly countries need to make energy payments in Russian currencies beginning today or risk a cutoff in supply. Gazprom, however, says the oil and gas are still flowing, at least for now. Anna Stewart joins us. Uh, The Kremlin spokesperson 
Mr. Dmitrov said today that these payments are due end of April, May. So there is a bit of time, Anna, but it's the technicals to this that I find fascinating and perhaps the need to buy rubles and support the Russian currency. Help us understand what's going on here. Yeah, it's highly technical and effectively no real change has to happen, at least from the point of view of Western buyers of Russian gas. Um, Gazprom Bank, however, does have to make some changes and they have 10 days from today when the decree is implemented to do so. They need to create ruble accounts for Western buyers uh, or unfriendly country buyers um, of Russian gas. And this is for Gazprom Bank, which the, all these buyers already use. That is how they make payments to Gazprom for their gas. Now, this is where it gets complicated. So the Western firms can still pay in euros and dollars to Gazprom Bank, as they do now, as per their contract. But Gazprom Bank will then trade it for rubles and use their ruble account to pay Gazprom. Technically, there is a change there, but in reality, both sides could really save face. So the Western buyers of Russian gas can say they're still continuing uh, to buy their gas with their existing contract using foreign currency. President Putin, in weeks to come, could probably confirm that Gazprom is only receiving Russian rubles, and that will give some support to the ruble. And who pays the transaction costs of having to do the conversion if that's what takes place, which is fascinating too, because that's not contracted. But what we're suggesting is it's rather Shakespearean. Sound and fury signifying nothing, perhaps. (laughs) Anna, what happens if someone turns off the taps for both sides here? Because there are costs, dramatic costs on both sides. And in many ways, this story, which is very technical, is just reflecting what we've been talking about now for weeks, which is just that. Can Europe afford to not buy Russian gas, given it relies on them for 40 percent of its gas? Can Russia afford to lose its biggest customer of oil and gas and a huge source of revenue, which it needs, given uh, how sanctions are squeezing that economy? I thought it was really interesting what the EU Economic Commissioner said to Richard Quest last night regarding all of this. Take a listen. It's enough time to circumvent sanctions and to blackmail the European Union, but it is anything that the existing contracts allow to do. Using the word blackmail is really interesting, isn't it? Because even if they are obeying uh, the letter of the law in terms of sanctions, even if um, gas payments can be made in line with that, is it in the spirit of sanctions if it circumvents the pressure that's being put, if it helps support the ruble, along with many other uh, capital control measures, of course, that Russia has already implemented. But at the end of the day, can Europe afford it? Can households afford it? Can businesses afford it? We've just had Eurozone inflation come in for March. It's at 7.5%, already very expensive for gas and oil, all energy prices. And today's not really helping with the weather. Snow flurries across Europe and here in the UK. Julia? Yes, it's blackmail, but here's the money anyway. Self-harm, the vulnerability to Russia here on energy. Self-harm. Anna Stewart, thank you very much for that. Okay, coming up, conflict cannot stop human connection. How donors in the West are sending money directly to Ukrainian families in need. That story just ahead. Welcome back. There's been an outpouring of support for the more than four million Ukrainians forced to flee their country since the start of the Russian invasion and the more than six million who've been displaced by the conflict as well. One of the most innovative programs to help families in need has come from the 1K Project for Ukraine. It's a P2P or a person-to-person program founded by venture capitalists. It allows donors to send a $1,000 amount directly to affected families 
Almost 70,000 Ukrainian families have signed up for relief so far. Alex Iskold joins us now. He's the founder of the 1K Project for Ukraine and was born and brought up in Ukraine. Alex, great to have you with us. I guess that's the first an enormous problem when you've got 70,000 people signing up. That's $70 million that you need to raise if you're going to give it to everybody. Um, let's start. It's an incredible project. Talk to me about the decision to, to do this. Yes, Julia. Well, thank you so much for shining the light on our work. Um, as you said, I was born in Ukraine, and this is incredibly personal for me as I still mm -hmm. have family and very close friends there. So, you know, a few days after the war broke out, um, you know, like many people, I was frustrated, exceptionally hurt, and wanted to help. And so the idea of the 1K project was born, and uh, today we're a team of over 70 volunteers helping people help families from Ukraine. And so far, you've helped, I believe, 2,500 families. So far, we've actually been able to help 3,500 families. Wow. So we've raised over $3.5 million. But as you said, uh, we have over 70,000 applications. So we've been able to help um, about 5%. And obviously, the need is much, much greater. So we need, we need, to, uh, we need to raise more money to help families. You know, first and foremost, with these things, in my experience, it's trust. Alex, how can you convince and tell people that are thinking, look, I'd love to give a family a thousand dollars if they can afford it. How do we ensure and trust that it's actually going to go to a needy family in Ukraine? What due diligence do you do and, and how can people be sure it's going to get where it needs to go? Absolutely. And I think that this is something that we've built and is working exceptionally well. So. Anyone can go to 1kproject.org and sign up to directly sponsor a family. On the other end, families apply and they also get referred through um, refugee centers and the network of um, trusted connections on the ground. Each family application is being checked both through an automation, but also very carefully read um, by our team of volunteers. So most volunteers on the project are literally around the clock reading family applications so that we can be certain, like you said, that the money gets into the right hands. Um, majority of families that get support are single mothers, because as one of volunteers said, this war made every mother into single mother, unfortunately. And so single mothers with multiple children are impacted the most, and that's been sort of the biggest priority and the focus of the project. What if people want to do more? I believe you have opencollective.com as well, which allows people to give more than $1,000 if, if they can. Yes. I mean, to everyone who's watching, um, you know, there's multiple ways you can participate. If you're able to sponsor a family directly, you can do this through 1kproject.org. If you're in a position to make a larger donation, uh, no matter where you are in the world, you can go to 1kproject.donate. And like you said, you can donate a larger amount. And also, if you can get your company involved and you can sponsor multiple families, we've had a tremendous outpouring from the tech community, which I'm very lucky to be part of. So from tiny startups that are giving $10,000 to sponsor 10 families to um, large companies like Yahoo, who generously donated $450,000, wow. everyone, everyone is trying to help and everyone is participating. Yeah, and I want to reiterate 
what you just said, which is you're prioritizing women with two or three children that have literally become single mothers overnight because they've had to leave their partners or their their husbands back in Ukraine to fight. Um, I know you're being flooded now with, with thank yous and praise by people who've lost everything and had to move virtually overnight. Um, given it's so personal to you, as you said, this is your homeland, these are your people and your friends and, and family. How does that feel? How does this praise feel? I mean, this isn't really about me or about the volunteers. This is all about the families. And I can tell you, Julia, when we receive those emails and messages on Instagram, pretty much all of them are saying that the 1K project is the only one good thing that happened to them since the war broke out. And they're all in tears. They're incredibly grateful. I've read a thank you note from a family yesterday that said that it's going to um, help them with over uh, six weeks of like food and closing. And so just to put this in perspective, we send $1,000, which is whether you're in Ukraine or you're displaced within Ukraine or you are in Europe, it's a very meaningful amount. And the project is meant to be a bridge. It's hopefully a bridge to when the war is over or people can resettle. And so the amount of money we send, $1,000, is exceptionally meaningful helping these families um, you know, for a significant amount of time. This is such an important point. This is a survival bridge. And if it can keep a family going for six weeks in the face of, of what they're going through right now, that's an incredible amount of time just to get them to a period, hopefully, where they can find some stability. Alex, thank you for what you're doing. Alex is called there, the founder of the 1K Project for Ukraine and the founder and partner of venture capital firm 2048 Ventures. Thank you, sir. Football fans around the world eagerly awaiting today's draw for the World Cup in Qatar. Beginning in around two hours' time, teams will be drawn in eight groups. We already know 29 of the countries that made it to the finals. The last three places still to be decided. Amanda Davies joins us now from Doha. And Amanda, one of those could be Ukraine. Walk us through the draw today. What can we expect? Yeah, absolutely, Julia. After one of the longest, most controversial build-ups to a World Cup in history, we are now just a couple of hours away from the draw. And as is indicative, really, of this World Cup with a difference, the first World Cup in the Middle East, the first to be played at the back end of the year in November, December rather than the summer, we enter this draw with three teams, three finalists still not decided, as you mentioned, in part because of the delays due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but also because of the war in Ukraine, which means their playoff game has been postponed against Scotland. The players very much saying that they do still want the opportunity to be able to take part in that playoff and play here at the finals. But of course, as the draw, as the war goes on, that becomes ever more difficult as a prospect with many of the players and their families still not able to leave Ukraine. They will, though, have their name in the draw for when it takes place. Uh, France go into it as the defending champions, uh, one of the most talented squads in world football. It's Brazil, the five-time World Cup winners who were the new top-ranked side in the world. They're back on the top of the rankings for the first time in five years. And it will be the hosts, Qatar, ahead 
of their home World Cup finals, playing in a World Cup for the first time, who will be in spot A1 in the draw, as is traditional. They are in the top group of seeds because they're the hosts. It will be them who kick off this World Cup on November the 21st, just waiting to see who they take on. Yes, I have to say, I feel a little bit sorry for whoever's going to hopefully play Ukraine in the run into this because most of the world are going to be uh, shouting and and supporting those Ukrainian players. Um, One of the things I quite like about this, and I'm not sure you can tell me because you're the expert on the match schedule is going to be decided afterwards, I believe, because going to look at some of these tie ups and work out where the audiences are and try and make it as easy as possible for the supporters around the world to watch. Yeah, it's something new that's taking place uh, at this tournament. There's a lot of new things with this tournament, Julia. You know, normally a World Cup takes place uh, across a whole country, doesn't it? With perhaps 11 or 12 different host cities. Here we're essentially having eight venues, but within one city, within a 50 kilometre distance. So that... Yes, it has its positives. People, they hope, will be able to go to more than one game in a day. But there's also a huge logistical challenge that comes with that, making sure that teams and groups are bunched in the right areas so you don't see fans crossing from the venue in the north to that in the south, that the metro doesn't become too jam-packed. We've experienced some of the traffic here in the last couple of days. This is the first time the entire football world from the delegation side has descended here on Doha. But, you know, they are expecting three million tickets to be sold for this tournament, which is taking ah. place in a much smaller time frame than normal. Normally, it's over seven weeks. Here, we're talking just four. So, logistically, there is a whole lot for Doha and Qatar to get to grips with. Yes. I was actually thinking about the digital and the TV viewers, not the people who are actually there, which is a great point. And Amanda, I've run out of time because there are other challenges and criticisms, of course, of this uh, Qatar World Games and and human rights issues too, which we should discuss, but we will have time for that. Amanda, great to have you with us and uh, we look forward to this draw. Amanda Davies, thank you. That's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.